Hi everyone, this is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. And along those lines, I'm really enthused and excited to have my guest on today. So Dr. Ira Bayak is the Chief Medical Officer of the Institute for Human Caring at Providence St. Joseph Health. But I think what's most important is that he has a super profound career passion and expertise in this area of advocating for better care. He's written many books, uh, specifically five books. Three of those are very, should sound very familiar to people. Um, and he's, you know, he's just been acknowledged out there for a while now for really caring for this specific segment and advocating for, uh, for better care. I'm not going to steal a thunder though, though. Uh, so Dr. Bayok, thank you so much for making time to be on our show and welcome. Thank you very much, Anthony. Been looking forward to this for a while. Super, super. As as myself as well. And you know, really, really great that we had we carved out some time to, you know, ground ourselves and and really tell your story, your passions, what you're focused on, and you know what your vision of health is in the future. And I guess along those lines, I'd love for you to teleport us back. Tell us where it all started. You know, your your passion and focus <laughs> for this area, this calling, probably had a seed somewhere. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about your origin story. Well, boy, so I'll try to be uh, succinct. Uh, I went to medical school uh, committed to being a rural family doctor. That, that was my career path. Mm. And um, that persisted, and I, I uh, selected you know, an incredibly challenging residency program that was specifically training uh, physicians for rural family practice, either solo practice or you know, small group practice, kind of cradle to grave. I learned to mm. do lots of stuff that most family practitioners no longer really do. Um, my own cesarean sections, neonatal care, fracture management, minor surgeries, lots of you know, uh, emergency medicine and intensive care. During my residency, I was, uh, uh, the seeds of a different path were sown when I realized that, um, and I was in Fresno, California at a, at a very busy, um, a public health hospital with fabulous UCSF related uh, residency programs and multiple specialties. I, I realized that we were doing great work and giving great care to people uh, in this, you know, a large cent rural central Valley of California. But when people were no acknowledged to be dying, acknowledged to be incurably ill, somehow they tended to fall out of our uh, focus. And some of them were literally put down the hall, sort of in the in in the hospital, uh, kind of away from um, the activity, you know, ostensibly to preserve their privacy, but really kind of they got less attention. And and I would I I, I continued to see people sort of waiting in the emergency department for four or five hours to get their Tylenol with codeine refilled, or I remember admitting more than one person who uh, w was being admitted to the hospital for rule out bowel obstruction. When you, when you took a careful history, they had merely been constipated because of those, you know, Tylenol with codeines or pain medications. And, mm. and nobody had done the basic work of, of, of you know, preventing uh, complications like, you know, severe constipation. Anyway, in my residency early on, uh, by addressing some of those really uh, gap, egregious gaps in care, we prevented lots of crises. 
care got a lot better in a, in a short period of time. I ended up helping to found a little fledgling hospice program. This is during my, you know, early residency in, in Fresno. And, and what, what really I learned at the time was not only did we prevent crises, but occasionally I would meet people who knew they were dying, uh, had, you know, days or weeks to live. And if I asked them, how are you doing, Mr. Rodriguez, how are you doing today? Look me straight in the face and say, you know, I'm well, doctor. How are you? <laughs> mm. This notion that you could subjectively feel well, kind of well within yourself, while physically you might not feel well at all, but emotionally, you know, right with the world, right with your loved ones, that as a family doc, I had no place to put that information, yet I couldn't deny it. Mm -hmm. That kind of set me on a career path that was somewhat different. And I went on, I was a rural family doc for a short period of time, you know, a little over a year or more. I, um, I practiced emergency medicine and ended up getting board certified in emergency medicine for many years. But along the way, uh, mostly in Montana, uh, I uh, was always doing a little bit of hospice work on the side, initially just kind of as a payback to the community, as a service to the community. But as hospice began to evolve, um, I, I took a more formal role and I was writing about this, both the clinical aspects and the ethics of, of caring for people through the end of life and ended up serving on endless committees. Ultimately in 1997 was asked by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to direct a national program, which was called Promoting Excellence in End of Life Care. Mm. Over the next 10 years, uh, I, I was privileged to direct this program. We gave away over $20 million to various um, really dramatically uh, innovative programs that were basically the seeds of what we would now call uh, hospital-based palliative care in cancer centers, in, in specialty children's hospitals, in um, VA hospitals, in correctional facilities, uh, federal correctional facilities, lots of different settings to integrate uh, hospice-like care, which was the term we were using at the beginning of that project, uh, with mainstream, you know, uh, disease treatment, curative or life prolonging care. Uh, and so I, I began to, during that, my tenure at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, I became utterly fascinated with how systems change, how physician practice patterns change, you know, how do you measure uh, better quality care from the patient's perspective, from the person or family's perspective? And how do you track the value, not only the quality, but also the, um, the costs uh, mm -hmm. and, and total expenses for care? And l let me just say, uh, I learned that not only was better care possible, but much better care was both possible and easily affordable. Uh, that some of our uh, assumptions and some of the regulatory barriers needed to get we needed to get beyond but mm -hmm. the dream of better care for actually less cost was was not a fantasy it was quite achievable mm -hmm. now I, I I love it I mean um, what, what I'm hearing in your story what you've worked on and what you've what you've done is really this um, 
this braveness and, you know, this brave and boldness to challenge the status quo, to ask new questions, to reimagine things, um, and, and really ask the deeper questions. And so it's really fascinating to see, you know, what you've done. And, and, and that's what, you know, obviously healthcare needs. And, you know, you're, you're leading the charge in this area. And, and I'm kind of curious with what you're working on now and what you've learned, you know, when you were at the foundation, you know, I'm sure you've taken those best practices to Institute for Human Caring. Um, I'd love to hear about maybe some of this in action, you know, kind of like maybe what are some examples? How how has change been occurring with systems and the, and the physicians? And um, maybe tell me about one or two things that really have you passionate today. Maybe maybe you can illustrate uh, sure. one of those two examples sure. Uh, sure. Of, uh, of it in action. Sure, easily. Um, so, uh, at, by the way, at, as I was um, starting to transition from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, I moved from Missoula, Montana to Dartmouth and spent 10 years at Dartmouth building out the palliative care program. I ended mm. up serving on their board of governors as the, of the Dartmouth Health, Hitchcock Health System. And that's where, you know, um, uh, um, so much uh, has uh, of, of the, 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 new frontier of value-based care, uh, accountable care organizations, uh, Elliot Fisher's uh, work there and, uh, and um, uh, Jim Weinstein's work. Uh, it's just been dramatically, it's in the water. Value-based care is in the water there. And, yeah. and, and I've brought that too to the Providence Health System now through this uh, uh, Institute for Human Caring. So scrolling forward to answer your question, we decided uh, uh, at Providence um, that um, we've shown that, you know, palliative care improves uh, comfort, quality of life. It, it often allows people to live longer and uh, feel better, live longer, and costs don't go up, they go down by meeting people's needs by coordinating their care, by anticipating and preventing crises, by managing crises a lot earlier, by supporting families so that people can stay home and stay less time in the hospital and acute care settings, more time at home, getting their needs met, but not requiring them to leave. All of that um, works really, really well in palliative care. And basically the question that we've asked is, why, do, why are we forcing people to go be seriously ill to get that level of highly personalized, coordinated, forward-thinking care for their whole persons, right? For them as a whole person, not just as a set of diagnoses. And so, and so what, what we've been doing is using sophisticated uh, change methodologies and, um, and um, uh, uh, you know, change um, adult learning and change strategies and metrics to drive uh, highly personalized models of care uh, without, again, without requiring people to be so seriously ill. Um, we're starting, however, by the way, with people who are seriously ill um, because that's where the need is greatest. That's where costs are highest and frankly, quality is abysmal in general across all of American health care. You know, um, um, so many people die in ICUs these days that would never have wanted to be there had they known uh, what the achievable physical and functional outcomes were. So what we've been doing uh, is several initiatives, or we have a, a, a portfolio of initiatives around goal-aligned care, which the Institute of Medicine and every specialty society says is the, is the you know, coin of the realm, that care 
is not just about treating your diagnoses, but in making sure that what we're doing is actually what people value. What we've done is take that altruistic statement, which is mostly honored in the breach in American healthcare, and we've operationalized it in, in a sophisticated way. So for instance, uh, one of the things that excites me most these days is um, we've developed a uh, str formal strategic metric and performance incentive that is tied to the, the percent of ICU stays or the percent of patients who have ICU stays of five or more days that have a documented goals of care conversation in their electronic health record during that hospitalization prior to the fifth day or on or, on or before the fifth day of their ICU stay. That is highly consistent with what a number of critical care societies have, have, have written as best known practices. Mm -hmm. We've operationalized it by creating a goals of care note type that is that has uh, smart data elements drawn from the uh, Ariadne Labs Serious Illness Conversation Guide. Uh, we've embedded that in our electronic health record. It, it makes it easy to, uh, it's kind of just-in-time prompts for what you might want to ask a family or an ICU patient. Usually it's the family meeting that's being held because the patient in the ICU is too sick to participate. What you would ask, what, you know, what they're um, giving them a sense of what's achievable physically and functionally during this ICU stay, what, what's likely to be the outcome, not only about survival, but about you know, functional independence, ability to enjoy life. And then how does that match up, that those achievable physical and functional outcomes with what people's personal priorities are, their, their um, personal values, preferences, and priorities. Mm. And, and we've, we've made it possible to put that in the chart um, and make sure that at least as a process measure, those conversations are being had. Whereas in most of American healthcare, we just assume that, you know, people don't want to die and, and keeping them alive at all costs, not just financially, but cost to their comfort, their dignity, you know, their values, frankly, is what's right. Well, no, it's not. So we've operationalized this and we're, we're making it easy for uh, busy hospital medicine doctors and oncologists and cardiologists and, and critical care doctors and teams to, to crush that metric. You know, we've built the templates. We have uh, uh, a two and a half hour interactive teaching sessions that we provide free of charge. We've done webinars. We've got um, uh, just in time information sheets and, and sort of uh, fact, uh, FAQ sheets. Um, and we have reliable dashboards on something called Tableau, which uh, you as a unit director or as a manager can look at and see how your team was doing on the proportion of ICU stays of five or more days that had or didn't have a goals of care note this month versus last month or the month before that. How you're doing uh, compared to another hospital of a similar size within our health system that is also on this journey. Mm -hmm. um, and and that alone, Anthony, is changing behavior. We're, we're wow. seeing over the course of a year this becoming a more routine uh, practice, not in all of our hospitals, but in many of them. 
And, and for those who are lagging, they're starting to feel the kind of pressure of pride that, you know, they're not looking as good as another hospital who, uh, um, and, and co a set of colleagues that they know. Right. We're, what we're also seeing is we're just beginning to see, it's early days, but we're beginning to see that um, those goals of care conversations seem to be positively associated uh, with things, key things like how many people change their CPR status during a, an acute care hospitalization. Um, and we're, what we're driving toward is what people's, what families' reactions are and patients' reactions are to these interventions and those conversations on things like HCAPs and sat other types of satisfaction or, or, or patient experience scores. Mm -hmm. So that well, has my fascinating. This is, yeah, super fascinating. I mean, a couple of things just to play back. I mean, what you're doing there with like this, this, the digitizing of the data and, you know, adding a smart element and, and, and taking these best practices and standardizing, almost like hard coding them, right? right. In, a, in a way yes. that to create upper and, and lower limits. So it becomes, you're really embedding the culture of these best practices. And sounds like obviously that you're starting in these areas and that could transfer into so many other you know, best practices and a, and a couple of other playbacks here is obviously the, the, the storing the structure of the information, but essentially, you know, you you just found some great ways to change behavior and, um, and change these routines for the better. Um, well, it's ambitious, me, but, but I, yeah, but I learned yeah. when I was at RWJ, I learned that the, that if you're going to change, uh, practice patterns mm -hmm. and particularly physician, you know, practice patterns, you have to make the right way, the easy way, or at least have to make the right way a lot easier than it is now. Right. And so uh, we've we've been very faithful to that and, and really strict about it. Uh, we know that the people, uh, the clinicians, frontline clinicians and, and frankly, practice managers uh, uh, are exceedingly busy. Um, so here we are imposing a new metric or a new practice uh, expectation. We have to make it easy. And, and one of the things that makes me proudest about this goals of care initiative is uh, we have had a handful of physicians, particularly ICU docs or hospital medicine docs, that when they heard about this were initially furious. Where is this coming from? Who are you? These another bureaucratic, you know, you know, um, uh, expectation, unfunded mandate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You just mm. nasty grams fuming at us. But when we respond and we listen and let them know that they're heard and and ask them to just take a, a look a closer look at what we've what we're doing here and and why, and they find out that we've actually thought about all the aspects of this the the change management stuff actually has been done education for them education for their staff um, the charting tools the patient education tools I didn't even mention that correspondingly tell uh, allows patients and families to know what this is about and that this is normative behavior these days. All of that, um, we've had a, a, a nice handful of our strongest attractors become champions, mm -hmm. actually saying, wow, you guys have really done this well. Thanks so much. This is, of course, this is what the way we want to practice, but it's been almost impossible until now. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I love it. I mean, and, and you know, the leadership that you're bringing to the space and the, the reimagining, you know, it's kind of like that's the tone that I'm taking away from a lot of the best practice you're implementing this and also this balance between uh, understanding human behaviors and families, how they operate today, the physician's interests, 
the economics of the hospital that just you know take, taking a lot of these things and putting them in a mod in a model that's that's very modern um dr Bayak, i guess so along those lines and uh, to take that a little bit further what you're doing here can you know it's a starting place extremely ambitious but you're getting compound success on your ambitions right um and, and it's it's starting to pay off you know from a human standpoint Tell me where this is going, where you see the future going in this space that you're focusing on. Like, what does the future of health look like um, what, related to what you're doing today and your so, space yes. that you're in and, and beyond? You know, I'd just love to hear a little bit about that. Well, I don't know what the future looks like. I wish I did, but I, but I can <laughs> tell you, I can tell you what, you know, the, uh, what the fears are and what the potential brights, uh, the, the bright potential future looks like in my in, in my mind and, and in our vision at the Institute for Human Caring. Um, the, the dark side is that uh, care becomes ever more transactional. Um, and, and there's a real risk of that happening because we, we are intentionally building, you know, um, delivery models of, of health services for the 21st century that are, in a sense, intentionally diverse and fragmented. You know, I, I, I got my flu shot this year at, at a grocery store, right? Um, I, uh, I did a, uh, a visit for my own health one afternoon when I had a sinusitis infection, you know, uh, uh, through a telehealth visit with a nurse practitioner. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and both of those were basically served my needs because they were pretty transactional and it, it worked well. But ultimately, I don't want my health care to be sort of that fragmented and reductionistic and transactional. Uh, ultimately, I want a doctor who knows me. I want a health system right. who responds to me as a person. And so, you know, can technology and how can technology foster highly personalized modes of care? Um, and I, I, I'm absolutely committed, committed and convinced that it can, but, it, but the fact, will it happen? I'm not sanguine about that. I think that's still that, that's the challenge and the opportunity. So mm -hmm. things like patient-reported outcomes or patient-reported information where uh, machine learning learns who you are with all, you know, you're, you're doing surveys before you get to the doctor's office through your uh, my chart in Epic, the, uh, the you know, uh, web-based portal or in or at a, at, on an iPad or, a, you know, tablet in their doctor's office while you're waiting for to be seen and and that and they learn that the machine learns about you so that the machine asks you questions that are tailored not only to your gender and your age and your but you're also your past history and your preferences that you've already given them and but it asks you stuff and expands expands on the realm on the on the scope of the clinical encounter without uh, necessarily uh, expanding the the length in time of the clinical encounter so it asks you things basic things are you safe at home you know, um, uh, uh, can you afford your medications? Uh, do you ever skip medications, you know, uh, because of cost? Uh, uh, do you have transportation to get where you need to go, not only to the grocery store, but to the doctor's office and all that? Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, from my perspective, uh, I think, back to acute care for the moment, that um, it's, <laughs> that there's good reason to, to create models that are highly personalized, that mm -hmm. we're not, we, we should be doing no interventions without conversation that, that aligns what the uh, diagnostics and therapeutics we have, state of art, that we can offer for your condition, but also 
uh, applying that disease treatment algorithms, for instance, to in ways that are consistent with what matters most to you, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. we, we we've not made one person immortal. This is not a you know. Uh, at some point, we have to tailor what we're doing with what people want, and even before serious illness, for the person who has a rotator cuff tear, for instance, not everybody needs a shoulder repair. Or, right. and shoulder reconstruction. The person who plays piano and canasta and is never going to play tennis, right, does not need a shoulder reconstruction. If you only go by the disease treatment algorithms, you're going to overtreat people and you're going to frankly disserve a number of people. So the bright future is where these things like goals of care conversations or shared decision making mm -hmm. become expected and routine not not something that is uh, anxiety provoking or only because we're worried that you're not going to get better. But no, it, it becomes um, something that, of course, we're going to do this. We wouldn't think of, of um, you know, uh, taking you to uh, um, um, hip reconstruction or shoulder reconstruction or a TAVR procedure for your aortic stenosis uh, or cancer treatment without pausing to look at what's achievable physically and functionally, what the potential benefits of this intervention are, and what are the known burdens, think surgery or chemotherapy, as well as the risks, the, the, the potential burdens. Mm -hmm. All of that is, you know, it takes a pause, it really is a change in, in what happens nowadays in American healthcare, where we just rush ahead to the diagnostics and therapeutics without that pause. Uh, but we know, you know, that's part of why we are the most expensive health system on the planet and have mediocre outcomes when you actually look across developed countries in, in meaningful health outcomes. Amen. No, Dr. Bayak, this is, this is great. And I mean, super profound. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited on, on a few things, you know, the work that you've done, the work you're doing and, and, and obviously where you're going with, with, um, not just the, the processes and best practices in new ways of thinking that you're, you're bringing to this space, but it's, it's more so the mindset that I really appreciate. And I'm sure your, your customers, your patients, those that you've serviced across your career, you know, appreciate similar. You know, we need more of you. So if there's a, there's an innovation I'd like to see in the future, it's a cloning machine so we can clone you <laughs> uh, and get you out to multiple, multiple systems out there in, in conjunction. But, uh, well, hopefully, aside, yeah. hopefully a lot of people are listening to, you know, a health hero here and, and, uh, we'll, we'll get the message. Amen. Yeah, no. And that's, that's the goal. You know, our, our, our job, our one job in this planet is to, 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 to find, you know, great best practices like this and talk about it and, and, and talk about health and, and rethink the modern way of healthcare. And, and the word modern seems to change these days in healthcare every like four to six months, <laughs> uh, which is, which is great, which is great. You know, we're, we're going towards, and I love the analogy of, you know, value-based being in the water from the, the last organization you're with and with your current right. one as well. And so, um, that, and now obviously that's the future we want to see because when you're focusing on value, it, everything starts to align. And then that's that's where the innovation can pour in and new ways of thinking. But uh, Dr. Bayak, I wanted to say a couple things. So uh, um, it was great having you on to share one thing, your, your story, your, your background, the spark, the seed of where it, this all came from. 
um, what you're working on today and, and obviously what your, what your vision is of, of health in the future. Obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but it, 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 it's, uh, it's pretty obvious, like the, the convergence of the different practices of processes, best practices, technology, leadership, new ways of thinking and, and a tone of reimagining. Um, is, is bearing great results for you currently and is going to continue. And so I, I fully support what you're doing. Um, I, I, I'd like to see, obviously, just it keep compounding. And, you know, obviously, as you work on more things, love to have you back on the show. Um, to be sensitive to your time, my very last question for you, I promise, one last question is contacting. So if our listeners would like to engage with you on social media, maybe, you know, uh, t tweet at you or send you a LinkedIn or, or reach out to you directly. If you'd like any of that to happen, uh, what would be the, sure. the best way to do so? So I, I, uh, I tweet at, uh, I tweet my, for myself at, uh, Ira, uh, at Ira Bioc, Um, and I have a website where I read all the emails that come through that. And that's just, uh, Ira Bioc.org. I R B excuse me. Hi, I'm my own name. I have my own name. <laughs> I-R-A-B-Y-O-C-K, I-R-A-B-Y-O-C-K is Bioc, I-R-A-B-Y-O-C-K dot org. Please, please visit. I, all the stuff I uh, write, it tends to go up there, any, um, any op-eds and academic articles, um, lots of stuff up there, links to the Institute for Human Caring. Um, uh, appreciate the attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's great. And definitely we'll, we'll, we'll drive our listeners to that. And um, so um, Dr. Bayak, this was great having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners out there, again, this is the Pop Health Show. This show is for people that are passionate about health, that have taken a calling to uh, take their life and help others and service others. And, um, and uh, Dr. Bayak, you're, you're, profound example of that and love to have you back on the show but thank you so much for carving out time to do this with me yeah, well it's been a pleasure talking with you thanks very much yeah same here much appreciated thank you take care